0: From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned,
1: I'm Preet Bharara. The truth is aging is inexorable. It's gonna happen to everybody. The very best companies find ways to slow the process down, sometimes to stop aging for a brief period, but you cannot stop it forever. So it is, you know, it is what it is. And when companies fight it, they cost their investors, in a sense, billions of dollars.
0: That's Aswath Damodaran. He's a professor of finance at New York University Stern School of Business. For four decades, he's been a leading authority on how to value a company and on why some corporations succeed and prosper while others do not. This expertise has earned him an apt nickname, the Dean of Valuation. And his analysis has less to do with number crunching and spreadsheets than you may think. We discuss the similarities of the growing pains felt by teenagers and those experienced by companies how Amazon has thrived compared to many of its dot-com bubble-era peers, and how to invest wisely. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
2: Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
3: Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
0: Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Michael, who writes, Now that the Republicans have control of the House, is there anything the Democrats can do in the Senate to counteract or limit the impact of baseless House investigations? That's a good question. And I guess the answer is, no not a lot. It's tough to counteract and mitigate things that are being done in bad faith, or that might be baseless, as you say. I mean, one thing that we know is coming in the House, and we've talked about this before, is a raft of impeachments, not just against Joe Biden on grounds that have yet to be articulated or substantiated, but also against cabinet officials. Some people think that the first impeachment on deck in the House is for Homeland Security Secretary, Ali Mayorkas. So we'll see how that goes, but obviously the House can do what the House wants to do, they have a greater ease in being able to put together investigations with a simple majority. The Republicans will have the gavels on all the committees and they can engage in a House impeachment investigation and recommend articles of impeachment for Ali Mayorkas or Merrick Garland or any other cabinet secretary, including up to the president of the United States, Joe Biden. The important thing though, is if articles of impeachment go to the Senate, particularly if they're in bad faith and not substantiated, not supported by the evidence, the democratically controlled Senate is where those articles will die, because conviction will not take place. So it's less a counteraction or a mitigation of what the House does, as opposed to stopping the process and having a vote that does not sustain a conviction for a baseless impeachment, if the impeachment is, in fact, baseless. The other thing that can happen with respect to other more substantial and substantive investigations, whether it's about intelligence issues or immigration issues or other kinds of things, is the Senate does have some history in putting together bipartisan, groups that investigate some of those same matters sometimes in parallel with the house that have a little bit more credibility a little bit more of a bipartisan nature and so you would have in the public square and in the public record not just some one-sided somewhat tainted investigation or conclusion from a house committee but something a little bit more measured and balanced from the senate that doesn't always happen it's typically happened in some years with respect to intelligence matters which for a long time has been done on a pretty bipartisan basis in the senate We'll see if that holds or if it doesn't hold. This question comes in a tweet from D, who says, Preet, do you think the January 6th committee will hand over evidence to special counsel Jack Smith? So that's a good question, something we've talked about before. There have been on prior occasions reports of an impasse between the January 6th committee and the Department of Justice. The question of whether or not all the interview transcripts will be turned over and on what time frame has been debated obviously the January 6th committee because of the change in control of the House is coming to an end. I expect its report to be issued in the next few weeks and then that committee will exist no longer in January of 2023. So I see no reason why at this point with their work at an end with the final report in the offing, they wouldn't hand over everything that they found to special counsel Jack Smith, including interview transcripts, documents they may have obtained and other information that they might have in their possession. I expect that to happen. I also expect as the committee has said before, that in any event, in some form, and at some point, they would make public those interview transcripts and even make public the video recordings of those interviews. So I don't see any reason why, particularly since there's now a special counsel, the Department of Justice has shown in a very real and substantial and concrete way that it's very seriously looking at conduct of Donald Trump and others around him in connection with the January 6th insurrection, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't share that information now. So I expect that to happen. And I expect it to happen relatively quickly. This question comes in a tweet from Arthur Dent, who asks, prior to the special counsel, Merrick Garland would have made the choice to prosecute Trump, correct? And now does that decision rest with the special counsel, or is it still reserved to Merrick Garland? Well, that's an interesting question, and depends on how you view the semantics of it. In my view, it still really rests with Merrick Garland in a meaningful way. And it's for this reason. Obviously, before the appointment of special counsel, Merrick Garland, of course, is the attorney general of the United States, and the buck stops with him. And any decision about prosecuting or not prosecuting Donald Trump or anyone else of that high stakes in nature rests with the AG. It's unthinkable that a final decision to make that charge wouldn't rest with Merrick Garland, who's at the top of the heap at the Justice Department. So now we see there's a special counsel. But the special counsel, unlike the independent counsel, is not completely separate and removed from the Justice Department. He still reports to Merrick Garland. Merrick Garland is still his supervisor. Merrick Garland, per the special counsel regulations, has the right and authority to overrule a decision made by Jack Smith. So it is possible that Jack Smith makes the decision to prosecute Trump. Merrick Garland can disagree with that decision and overrule it. And by the way, any disagreement of that nature has to be reported to Congress. We would likely find out about it per the special counsel guidelines. But Merrick Garland still has veto power over a prosecution. So, yes, it is true that the special counsel, Jack Smith, will make the decision. But that decision is subject to the discretion of Merrick Garland. So special counsel or not, Jack Smith or not, the buck, in a very meaningful and real sense, still rests with the attorney general, Merrick Garland. We'll be right back with my conversation with Aswath de Modera.
2: Discover the power of NetSuite, a leading cloud financial system serving more than 37,000 businesses. Download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com preet. That's netsuite.com preet to get your
5: own KPI checklist. Support for this show comes from DraftKings Sportsbook. The big game is almost here and DraftKings Sportsbook has you covered with a brand new offer. New customers can bet on the big game and turn 5 bucks into 200 instantly in bonus bets. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code PREET. New customers can bet $5 to get 200 instantly in bonus bets. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 58, with code PREET. The crown is yours. Gaming resources.
0: What is the value of a company? And will that assessment lead to a desired return on investment in your stock portfolio? How are the corporate and human life cycles analogous? Professor Aswat Damodaran has been among the most respected and influential voices on these and many other questions on how to assess the true worth of a company. Professor Aswath DeModeran, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you for having
0: me on. So I'm going to begin with a question that I did not write, but that comes from a devoted listener and fan of the show. Ready? Okay. The question is, and of of course, as I said in the intro, you're a professor of finance at NYU Stern School of Business. And the question is, who among your colleagues at Stern is the most disliked and also loved at the same time? I can give you a hint and you'll probably guess who asked the question. Uh Okay. The person who asked the question uh, believes that the answer to the question is that person.
1: Okay. I, I think that I know who they're talking about. I mean, <laughs> it's a, he, he writes a lot about tech companies and he does make uh, provocative statements. He does. Uh, there are two people that I can think of. One is um, what I call, you know, I call him the Eeyore of finance in a sense. I've never heard him say anything positive about any aspect of the of the world in the 25 years I've known him. The other is known for. I mean, he's a he's a good friend of mine, but he does make statements that get him into trouble. It might be the second one. Who would that be? Yeah, that'd be Scott Galloway. Scott Galloway, yeah,
0: who is not only your colleague at Stern, but is my colleague at Vox Media. And and I said, give me give me a good question to start off with. <laughs> and of course, he started off with a self a self referential question about himself, in the guise of trying to be self
1: deprecating, but really self promoting. Wouldn't you say? That, that's that's Scott for you. All right, will you keep an eye on him for us? <laughs> I don't see him enough, but if I do, I will. No. So, so why
0: can you explain to people who have not gone to business school and don't have a finance degree what the study
1: of finance means? The study of finance is just reminding ourselves of of truths that have been that have been around forever. I mean, finance as a discipline is only about 60 years old. I mean, you can trace it back to the 1950s. But good business people through the ages have always understood first financial principles. I mean, some some you're already aware of, right? Whatever you take in, you spend. If you spend more than that, you're asking for trouble. If you borrow money, you better be sure about what you're buying, otherwise it's going to get you into trouble. Finance just takes those age-old concepts, puts a layers of theory on top of it, and then repackages it with buzzwords and sells it to the, to the world. So to me, finance is about the sound use of money. I mean, that's it. And, and how to make that happen, whether you run a business or whether it's in your personal
0: life. And, and how do you distinguish for people who say they study economics or they want to study economics,
1: the difference between the study of economics and the study of finance? Finance is applied to economics. I mean, the way I think about it is economics is incredibly abstract, at least the way it's taught in universities or in textbooks. Finance is applied. It's very difficult to be abstract in finance because you're surrounded by examples in the real world that you can't avoid. I'll give you an example. I teach valuation. That's one of the two courses I teach. And when you teach valuation, you cannot avoid questions like, how do you explain FTX being priced at whatever, 50 billion, 80 billion, 100 billion, going to zero essentially over the course of a few weeks? Those are the questions I would expect to get when I get out there in January. So you cannot avoid the real world in finance. You can in economics. (laughs) Right, a lot of assumptions in economics,
0: a lot of theories in economics, some of which have never been proven, correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I I think, uh, you know, much as economists like to think of themselves as objective and scientific, you cannot be a scientist if you're in economics and finance because we're in a world where human beings trade and human beings bring all their behavioral quirks into trading. So in fact, one of the healthiest things that's happened in finance over the last 40 or 50 years is the confluence of psychology and finance. We call it behavioral finance, but it's about recognizing that human beings don't always act in the rational way, ways that economists have assumed they'd act for hundreds of years. That's not the case. We, we behave in strange ways because we're human.
0: We do. So... I want to talk about valuations for a moment, Mm -hmm. and then I want to get into your theories of the life cycle of companies, because I think that's very interesting Mm -hmm. and helps, I think, in your writing and teaching to explain many things, including what kinds of CEOs belong to what kinds of companies, how long companies will last, what kinds of decisions they should make, et cetera, et cetera. But on valuation, for people who either don't invest or invest a little bit, and you gave an example a few minutes ago, but what is the proper way to understand the value of a company, and does that proper understanding matter? if in the marketplace it is given some value based on buying and selling of the stock of the company?
1: Valuation itself is very simple. The way we might might put it into practice might be complicated. It's about cash in, cash out. It's not what accountants tell you a company makes, it's how much cash you get in, how much cash you get out. And it brings in the common sense proposition that you'd rather have the cash today than cash 10 years out. So almost all of valuation is estimating cash flows factoring in the time value of money and coming up with what something is worth today. I use a different word for what markets do. They price things, demand and supply. That's driven by all of the behavioral factors we talked about. And that's not value. The two, That's not value, that's price. And it's driven by mood, it's driven by momentum. It can even be driven by revenge. I mean, remember the GameStop episode where Redditors got together and said, we're going to take revenge against the hedge funds. And we're going to push the price of GameStop to $400 per share. Nobody was talking about the value of GameStop being $400. It was primarily revenge. So when we talk about what we observe in markets, what we're observing is pricing. What you do when you value something is looking at cash flows and coming up with what you would pay for something. And we've got to recognize that the value of something and the price of the same thing can be very different numbers. Because pricing is based on, you know, it's It's psychological. Value has nothing psychological about it. It's the most precise and pragmatic exercise. We estimate what you can gain if you own the business. So what's the relationship between price and value? If you are in the old school of finance, which believes in efficient markets, the assumption is sooner or later, the price has to adjust to value. But as uh, Lord Kane said, you know, in the long term, we're all dead. We could be waiting a long time for price to adjust to value. But it's an article of faith in finance that eventually value and price will converge. But in the meantime, we could see vast divergences between the two. And I think that's something that investors and traders need to recognize in markets is you can be right and you can go bankrupt being right, you know, on value. And you can be wrong and make millions of dollars because you got the direction right. Well, are you a believer in this view that ultimately price reverts to value? I do, but I also recognize that I I could be, it it might be beyond my lifetime. So from that perspective, I don't invest based on value expecting to get rewarded. I invest based on value because I expect that if I live long enough and if I'm right on value, eventually I'm going to see a payoff. But if I don't, you know what, I'm not going to be disappointed. It's the way the world is. So let me give you an example of a concrete stock, mm-hmm. Amazon.
0: And you've written about Amazon and lots of people have, and there are many things to say about that company, but was Amazon
1: either overvalued or overpriced or both back in the early 2000s? It, it was. In fact, when I talk about Amazon, I've to, I tell people I've bought Amazon five times I've sold Amazon four times, which kind of tells you where I'm with Amazon right now. <laughs> Wait a minute. I can do that, man. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but basically, Amazon is a stock where it's overshot as it did during the dot com boom. Then it undershot right after the dot com bust and it's gone through cycles. It's, it, and it's not just Amazon. It's, it happens to be true that with most, most young growth companies, markets overshoot and they undershoot. And as an investor, I think of that as opportunity. When they overshoot, I sell. When they undershoot, I buy. But the reason for that, again, is people get overexcited about the good stuff in good times, and they get overexcited about the bad stuff in bad times. So essentially, they push the price away from the value in both directions. But if you bought Amazon in 2000,
0: 2001, 2002, $1,000 of it, and you've held it till today, do you have a rough sense of how much money you would have?
1: Oh, you'd be incredibly wealthy. I'm trying to think of, you know, you'd have increased your money a hundredfold. So that's
0: why I'm confused.
1: In what sense then, if you're buying
0: Amazon in 2001, could that price or value have been overstated
1: if today you'd be a hundredfold richer? In statistics, one of the biggest flaws is selection bias, which is if you pick a winner and work, I mean, I'll give you a much simpler example. If you bought each of the stocks in the Dow 30 at the time they went public, you'd be incredibly wealthy today. Why? Because it's a selection bias. The way you end up in the Dow 30 is by being incredibly successful. The way to frame that experiment is to go back to 2000. Remember in 2000, we hadn't anointed Amazon as as the winner yet. There are probably 10 companies that were all viewed like Amazon as having incredible potential. Put your money in equal amounts in all 10 and hold them for 20 years. And then look at the returns you'd have made across the 10. And guess what? Those don't look that great because... Seven of the 10 crashed and burned somewhere along the Remind way. Us, uh, uh, so in yeah. hindsight, the most successful stocks, you look back and say, I wish I just bought that and held it all the way through. But that's not that's not a fair test. It's not a fair test because I think what you're saying is the
0: smarter way of thinking about what stock to buy today is not necessarily, I might have this wrong, is not necessarily the particular company, Amazon or Microsoft or some other company, but the small group of companies in that category, across which you must invest some amount of money? Does that make sense? Is that what you're saying?
1: That actually makes sense. And um, and I think that the key here to, is to remember that, you know, I think that when people talk about concentrated portfolios, and I've had this argument multiple times with value investors, in particular, old-time value investors. And they say, if you have conviction, why don't you just buy one or two stocks and just hold on to them? Because I don't have enough conviction in any of my investments to believe that I've found the one. I think the odds are in my favor when I've done my homework and I've found a stock that I think is undervalued, but I'd rather spread my bets across 10 companies that I believe are undervalued because then I have the law of large numbers working in my favor. I don't want to be right on every one of them. I just have to be right on average. So my advice to people is don't be arrogant. Don't just load up on one or two or three stocks, no matter how sure you feel that you've got the right stocks, because unless you have inside information, which would already put you on the wrong side of the law. Um, there's there's absolutely no way you can be hitting winners that well that you can concentrate your portfolio.
0: At this point, I need to announce to the audience, be careful about trading on inside information. (laughs) It can sometimes lead (laughs) to a lot of trouble, depending on your position and what the inside information is. So I guess all of this was, was a journey on the way to ask you the question that many listeners might have. You know, an average intelligent person who has access to information and has access to a brokerage, maybe has access to a financial planner in this economy at this moment, how should they think about investing?
1: No, I, I tell people, look, if you enjoy investing, then be an active investor. If not, put your money in index funds, fire your financial planner, and then go back to living your life. I, I think the problem the world we live in is too many people are trying to make money on the market, and that's not healthy. Because ultimately, the games they're playing are zero-sum games, for every one of going to be a loser. I mean, look at the crypto space. I see young people taking their entire savings and hoping to get rich in the market. When I mean, you invest in markets to preserve and grow your wealth, you don't invest in markets to get rich, but somehow in the last decade, people have got their heads screwed on wrong. And I, you know, I tell people, look, if you don't enjoy investing, it's not worth the hassle. It's not worth the trouble. It's not worth the, the money you're going to be spending. Because we now have options that are basically trouble free. You open up a brokerage account, you buy five index funds pretty much set in terms of being an investor. Being an active investor takes work, it takes effort. And for many people, it's not what they they, they, they particularly enjoy doing. So why why torture you? So
0: are those funds, hedge funds and other funds and investment planners,
1: are they all overvalued to coin a term? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think active investing is the strangest profession <laughs> on the face of the earth. Says the professor of finance. I know because i and i say that you know because we can see the evidence of what the 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 average active mutual fund or the average active hedge fund earns one percent less than what you could have earned putting your money into index funds at no cost that's why i call it the strangest profession we're paying these people millions of dollars to basically underperform what we could have done ourselves with no cost at all but hope springs eternal. We're drawn by that dream of I can double my money. I can be the next Warren Buffett. And uh, these people take advantage of it, and, and they might, in, in their hearts, believe that they're the winners. But in hindsight, you look at them and say, you, you know, you you really can't beat the market. But this, I'm con- this.
0: so confused, and I've had this conversation with many people, and I have, mm-hmm. you know, friends and others in the in some of these industries. The people we're talking about, who are maybe paying more than they should or overvaluing a certain kind of investment advice. These are not people who are buying lottery tickets with their social security money or going and playing the slot machines on their retirement income in Las Vegas or in Atlantic City. These are sophisticated, educated, smart people, some of whom themselves have finance degrees. If what you say is true, and I have no opinion, if what you say is true, Mm. what is to explain the huge industry that you've just criticized?
1: Nobody wants to be average. (laughs) Greed is just universal. In fact, I think that being smart actually magnifies your greed because you're now looking at, you know, alternatives or options that other people did not look and said, there must be a pocket of the market that we can exploit. So you're actually, it's much easier to sell these scams to really smart people with a finance background because you just have to throw a few buzzwords, appeal to their greed, and then talk about these pockets of the market you're exploiting for them to jump in. I mean, there's a reason the Bernie Madoff and no. the SBFs of the world are able to do what they do is because they're drawing on the fact that greed applies across all kinds of people, and especially amongst yeah, people. the Madoff investors, the Madoff victims were all sophisticated. Absolutely, all all of them, except for the Wilpons, because you look at what they did with the Mets. <laughs> I completely I understand. No you know what happened there with uh, with the Madoff.
0: So I think I feel I feel very good about this conversation
1: in part because. I think I've said
0: this before, but it's not a state secret. All of my savings, to whatever they are to speak of, all mm. of, and you tell me how I'm doing, all of it is either in cash, certificates of deposit,
1: or the S&P 500 dollar cost averaging over the last number of years. How am I doing? You're doing well. In fact, the only thing I'd suggest is now we have index funds that allow you to be international as well, which being global hasn't been that helpful for the last decade. The U.S. markets have done so much better than the rest of the world. But the rule in investing is spread your bets, spread your bets across sectors, spread your bets across geographies, spread your bets across all types of companies. The S&P 500 is a very, if you're going to pick one index, I would make it the S&P 500. That's mine. I feel good. Yeah. And and I think you've you've made the right choice. Should I have gold? Gold is, you know, it, it, it depends on how much you're worried about inflation. Gold is insurance against inflation. That's really the only reason to hold gold. And if you hold gold, it should be three, maybe 5% of your portfolio, not more than that.
0: You know, I was talking to someone very smart who's in the investment world, and this was about six months ago, and I asked the question about crypto. And this person right. said that, look, you spread your risk, you spread your investments like you just said, and some of your investments, if you're wise and smart and cunning, you put in safer things, gold, cash, etc. Mm-hmm. But then you want to have the upside of something that may be volatile enough to go up tremendously, and this person suggested, you know, a percent or so, or 1.5% of the portfolio
1: maybe should be in cryptocurrency. Do you have a view of that view? I don't see it. Because if you want to bet on something that has vast upside, buy a lot of, you know, young companies that are going public that are money losing and buy them when, buy Peloton. Right. I mean, at least you're solving some problem, a fitness problem. I've always, I mean, my challenge with crypto, and I've really given them every conceivable chance to try to explain what exactly crypto is and what it's trying to solve, is for 12 years I've struggled, especially with Bitcoin. And, the, and, and my, I have two questions. One is, what is the problem that Bitcoin is designed to solve? Is it that um, we don't have enough currencies to pay for things? I mean, I look centralization. at Centralization. People will say centralization. And paranoia. I mean, I've described Bitcoin as a currency created by the paranoid for the paranoid. It is built on no trust. And I've always argued that if you build something on no trust, it's going to be incredibly inefficient. And that's exactly what the problem with Bitcoin is. There's a reason we've I mean, people act like, you know, this has all never been done before. But if, you know, pre-Civil War, each bank used to issue its own currency, There's a reason we centralized currencies and we created a federal reserve. It's not because we wanted to, but because without it, it was incredibly inefficient to have multiple currencies. You could figure out what the exchange rates were. Some were valuable, some were not. So the problem with crypto is because it was built on that, that platform of we cannot trust someone, it had nowhere to go. And as a consequence, 14 years later, you look at how often people use Bitcoin in transactions. I'm not talking about trading Bitcoin, but for buying coffee, buying your lunch, buying your house. You still see it as a currency that almost no one uses. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes me really worried about putting any of my money in Bitcoin because the currency that nobody uses, then why would it hold its value in the long term?
0: I want to go back to valuation for a moment. You said something Mm -hmm. about Amazon. I had never thought of it this way. That if you bought Amazon back in two thousand and one, you're probably the type of person who might have also bought some other high flying companies that were overvalued or mm-hmm. overpriced, but that right. have fallen by the wayside. Could you could you remind
1: some folks of what those companies are that we may have forgotten about? I mean, you might about Cisco because I remember Cisco came off a really successful decade. In the 1990s, a stock that went up a hundredfold in your portfolio yeah. because it had done well. Remember what you're doing is you're chasing success. That's what led you to Amazon in 2000 is a stock that had done really well for a decade. You might've bought pets.com. You might've bought, I mean, the, the, there were a bunch of dot-com companies that were that were cresting. You might've bought yep. Yahoo in 2000. Looked like a great company. By 2015, the company was so, dead and why,
0: can we Can we so pause on that? Because
1: some of what I want to discuss with you is the reasons for failure. Why does a company like Yahoo fall, but Google thrives? Yeah, I think part of it is natural aging. Google thrives for the moment, but 15 years from now, we may be looking back and say, what the heck happened to Google? And that's one of the the messages I've been delivering with my life cycle argument, is the companies of the 21st century soar much faster. I mean, Yahoo went from nothing to a hundred billion in five years. It took Ford a century. To pull that off, right? To go from startup to a, to an established company. Five years, they went to a hundred billion. Fifteen years later, they were done. So I think we've created these short life cycle companies. I describe tech companies as aging in dog years. So sometimes it's nothing the company does. It's built on a technology that once the technology passes, the company passes with it. Something to think about as you look at the fall of Facebook. I mean, you can think of Facebook as a fallen angel. It's going to come back. The other might be, hey, maybe the type of social media platform that Facebook is has had its moment in the sun. There's something else, some other technology that's going to take its place. It's very difficult, not impossible. You can see Apple and Microsoft reinvented themselves. It's very difficult for a technology company to reinvent itself once the base technology fades. But you make this point that
0: you can't just use numbers and a calculator to figure out the valuation of a company, the value of a company, although that's black and white and applies mathematics, you also have to think about the story associated with the company. My question is, how do you, when storytelling and trying to figure out the story of a company or a product or a management structure is so subjective and amorphous, how do you pair the
1: storytelling and the math doing together to figure out the value of a company? I'll take you back to 2001 when I bought Amazon. I described it as my field of dreams company. If you remember in Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner says, if we yes. build it, they will come. And Amazon always seemed to me me to be a company that told investors, we're going to build the revenues first and the profits will come. And they were so so incredibly consistent about that story that markets in a sense cut them an incredible amount of slack. I mean they were still losing money right. 10 years after going public and markets said that's okay you have a, you have a story that you're consistent. But that
0: story with. is at, was aspirational and right like so many other things but it
1: was could backed have been a bill of goods.
0: What were the actions that backed it up?
1: First they they did go into new markets and they were incredibly patient. People don't forget that Amazon Prime no, it started, I think, in 2004. For the first six years, it did absolutely nothing. It was stuck at about a million subscribers. People just didn't want it. And then it took off. It took 16 years before Amazon.Prime became a money maker for Amazon. And now it's, I think, worth about $100 billion of Amazon's value because a typical Prime member spends about three to four times as much on Amazon than a non-Prime member. There are very few companies that have that kind of patience. And Amazon has shown that kind of patience from the beginning. So when you tell a story about the company, you're watching the company to see if it stays consistent. Because every company tells a story. Very few companies are willing to act consistently with their own stories. To me, that's a red flag. When a company says one thing and does something very different, I'm going to go back and revisit my story saying, I don't buy that story. The company's not acting consistently. So your story's got to be backed up by management actions. And if the management actions are not there, you got to revisit that story and change well, it. Well, how can you tell if
0: you're an average person or even a somewhat sophisticated investor if the story the company is telling
1: is a flat-out lie, like with Theranos? Theranos, one question would have revealed it as a lie. In fact, I wrote a post at the time that it happened about why that question wasn't asked. I mean, this was a blood-testing company, yeah. not a social media company, not an online ad company. There's only one question you need to ask, which is, does your blood test work? And you look at that list of investors, you talk about sophisticated investors, that original list of VC investors in Theranos was a who's who of Silicon Valley. And none of them seem to want to ask that question, does your blood test work? And I describe these as runaway stories. We have a charismatic storyteller, a story you so want to be true that you stop asking questions. And you combine the two you get the theranos and the WeWorks works of the world which is you let the storyteller run away with the story and nobody's asking the question about hey does this blood test actually work is this plan that they have of putting a blood testing site in every Walgreens a viable I mean following through on stories often means asking questions that other people are going to be you know impatient when you ask them because you're asking questions about the nuts and bolts of business and these people have soaring stories. And I'll give you one more mm-hmm. red flag. In almost every one of these stories, there'll be an aspect of the story where they will claim to make the world a better place. But sometimes that's
0: true, isn't it? Look, so for example, Elizabeth Holmes, with respect to Theranos, is, as you've said a second ago, a charismatic storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that should be on its own a red flag or not. But Jeff Bezos, who we've been talking about indirectly, also Charismatic
1: storyteller. Mm-hmm. How do you tell the difference between those two if you're an ordinary person? In fact, Jeff was never a, I mean, I think the people when they when they think of Jeff Bezos, think of the Jeff Bezos of the last seven years. I mean, I remember asking questions in 2010 or 2011 to an audience of investors who were well informed and asked them, "Who's the CEO of Amazon?" Do you know how few people actually knew? that Jeff Bezos was the CEO. He was no Elon Musk. He was not somebody who was up front and center. He let his actions tell the story. I mean, there's- So he's become an icon in a, in a sense and the charismatic storyteller you think later. Yeah. I think in fact, I can, tr- uh, you can. you can look at Jeff Bezos' rise in the public consciousness to the day he bought the Washington Post. Because once that happened, he became part of the public discourse for reasons that you well know. And I- I- in a sense, it's only recently that you have these pictures of a bare-chested Jeff Bezos on a pool somewhere with hanging out with somebody. You know, he was in the background for the first ten or fifteen years that Amazon became a great company, and I mean, you know, that's I think what made Amazon so successful. It wasn't it wasn't a personality-driven company. It was never about Bezos. He built a management team that could outlive him, and that to me is a sign of a great founder. Somebody builds a company that can last when they walk away from the company.
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Aswath Demotoron after this.
2: Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit Mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level.
3: Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And the listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
0: So let's get to your life cycle theory of companies, which I think... It's very interesting and also is very entertaining. Uh, and for, for people who have children and have, and have lived uh, through some of the cycles of life, like I have, they're kind of telling. So you have infants, toddlers, etc. What, what are the different stages
1: of a company? A startup is like a baby. It needs constant, constant care and attention. I mean, it's, it's the nature of startups. They need capital, so that's like milk, mother's milk, basically. Then you get to toddlers, they fall, they get up, they fall, they get up, sometimes they fall and don't get up, the young companies. Then you get corporate teenagers or business teenagers. What do they do every day? They wake up, they look in the mirror and they say, I have lots of potential, what can I do today to screw it all up? When I I mean, When I bought Tesla in 2019 and one of its bouts when its stock price had dropped enough for it to be a bargain, I described it as my corporate teenager. I said, look, I'm buying Tesla with open eyes, which is, I think the company has incredible potential but every morning, one man gets up, he looks in the mirror and he says, what can I do today? <laughs> Screw it all up. No. And I think, you know, Elon Musk is this mix. You get the entire mix. He's a visionary, but he's also easily distracted. I mean, you're building a trillion dollar car company. Why would you tweet about a Thai diver? What's a, you know, what in your frame of reference thought it was a good idea? But that's you get the package. That's for the corporate teenagers. And then you're at the peak of your life. Google and Facebook, five years ago, everything you touch turns to gold. And I tell people, enjoy yourself when that's the case, because sooner or later, middle age is going to come. And when I said that five years ago, people said, oh, Facebook will never be middle-aged. It's always going to have high growth. Well, guess what? Facebook has transitioned very quickly to late middle age. I mean, the problems it's facing are middle age problems. And then you get old. And as you get old, you find that the things you used to do 20 years ago are no longer working. You fight it, right, as human beings do by facelifts and acquisition of another company. You try to bring consultants in, say, make me young again. The truth is aging is inexorable. It's going to happen to everybody. The very best companies find ways to slow the process down, sometimes to stop aging for a brief period. But you cannot stop it forever. So it is... No, it is what it is. And when companies fight it, they cost their investors, in a sense, billions of dollars. So that's part of the reason I think I, I you know, I push the idea is I see companies fighting aging all the time. Consultants and bankers love it because this is how they make money is by convincing you you can be young again. But it's, you know, it's not good for the company. It's not good for the economy. It's not good for investors. It's, it, I mean, I can't think of much good that comes from fighting age. So I want to ask you about some
0: of those particular stages. Yeah. Remind people who may not be aware of how many infant
1: companies even survive infancy. Two out of three startups don't make it through year two. So 67%. In fact, if you look at the, 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 uh, at, at the aging of companies, each year that you live, you improve your odds of making it. So the mortality rate with very young companies is huge because many idea companies yeah. don't make it to product. Many product companies don't become businesses. I mean, that's why VCs have to really spread their bets. They've got to invest in 40 idea companies for four to make it through the cycle. So it's a, It's incredibly high. And it's one reason those companies did not hit public markets prior to the 1990s. Companies waited until they had a business model, waited until they had a semblance of profits to go public. If you get a chance, you take a look at Apple and Microsoft's prospectuses when they went, when they went public. You see companies that were pretty much established in their business model. They still had growth potential, but they'd made it through their youth. Today, I mean, starting in the 1990s and going through today, you you see companies jumping jumping the queue, making it into markets when they're still very young companies without business models, and they're aided and embedded ab- by both venture capitalists who push them out there and public market investors who seem to be willing to take a bet on these companies. You know, when you're speaking, it's making me think about something, and maybe this is a silly question,
0: but in an efficient economic model, is it right and most effective and most efficient? That of every hundred startups, only 33 or so make it to year two? Should an efficient universe mean that fewer people are starting companies and a higher percentage of them survive? Or in fact, should there be many, many more startups so that only the very best ones survive? What's the proper ideal ratio of infant success?
1: I mean, I think it was Joseph Schumpeter who described capitalism as creative destruction. So in a sense, you would expect a lot of failures. What would make it inefficient? is If you gave these failures billions of dollars of capital and you let them waste it, that would be a system that is rewarding failure. And unfortunately, for the last decade, you had risk capital in such abundance that bad ideas have been capitalized and kept alive for much longer than they should have. And I think that's, I think, what we should be talking about is not that companies fail, but that companies that fail often are able to attract tens of billions of dollars of capital before they fail, because then they can do some real damage. They fail bigger than they used to. I mean, I'll give you an example. I don't think Lime or Bike, I mean, you're probably familiar with both these companies that started where you could, you know, basically use an app to rent a scooter or a bike. I don't think either company should have seen the light of day. I mean, they were bad ideas, bad business propositions. And you could tell at the moment that they were conceived that this was not going to go anywhere. But think of how many billions of dollars of capital people poured into it, into both companies before they failed. Or MoviePass. I mean, talk about a stupid business idea. $9.99 to see as many movies as you want every month. I mean, who thinks that you're actually going to make money from that proposition? But think of how many billions of dollars people threw into that idea before it went under. So I don't have a problem with companies failing, but I do have a problem with risk capital in such abundance that these companies eat through capital before they fail. And worse, they destroy the business for the rest of the world. I mean, I think of ride-sharing companies. Ride-sharing companies still haven't figured out how to make money. You know, Uber doesn't make money. Lyft doesn't make money. Didi doesn't make money. Grab doesn't make money. Ola doesn't make money. But guess what? They're out there and they've destroyed the taxicab business. What if five years from now we discover that ride sharing doesn't work? We shut them all down. What are we going to go back to? So sometimes the damage that's created when we throw capital at bad ideas is such it's long standing. It's not going to come back if the idea dies.
0: How much of this is a matter of adapting to competition and to uh, technology? So for example, I used to give the example when I led my office to talk about the importance of being open to new things and innovating and never standing still hmm. that there was a time when everyone in the government, most business executives used a blackberry. Right. And I think the the, the blackberry was thought to be an indestructible, essential, absolutely essential tool mm-hmm. for anyone who wanted to be in touch right. with colleagues or business people. And it went overnight to nothing. So that's one example. Right. And the second example I want to give you, and maybe you can comment on both is there was a company that of my youth that was very important in my life called Blockbuster. Which I think was a pretty good idea at the time. Yeah. There was another company that came along a little bit later mm-hmm. called Netflix, which was a slight advance in mm-hmm. which you would get DVDs of movies mailed to you. So you wouldn't have to go to the store. Okay. But it was not, you know, so much more advanced beyond Blockbuster. Netflix is a gigantic, successful, mature company. Blockbuster is gone.
1: Same is so for Blackberry versus iPhone. Could you address that? Now, BlackBerry is a perfect example of how companies can go from being startups to soaring successes to complete failures over a period of like twenty years with the same management in place. I mean, that's why I find it laughable when people talk about great managers and terrible managers—a concept that you know that I think you know Harvard Business School and um, McKinsey have marketed. You know, they've come up with the seven personality traits you need for great CEOs. It's complete bunk. Because the same people ran BlackBerry when it was a startup, when it was a soaring success, when it was failing. And you say, what changed? The world changed under them, but they refused to change. So I think with BlackBerry, the problem was it was a company that was conceived to fit a need, but then smartphones came along and completely devastated the core of their business. And there was really nothing they could do about it. They could not compete with Apple because it was operating with a very different business model. So I'm not sure there was much that BlackBerry could have done other than say, look, you know, our best days are done. Let's, you know, in fact, I suggested a very secure version of a BlackBerry that we marketed only to the most paranoid corporations, where they said, look, you know, you can't use a smartphone. you got to use a BlackBerry when you're here because it's more secure. But uh, I think they, until their dying day, they thought they could make it back as a smartphone business. And there was almost no chance they could after they missed that first window. Now, Blockbuster, it's interesting because you're right, Blockbuster got pushed out by Netflix and Blockbuster wasn't aware that it had lost the market for seven years after it had stopped growing. In fact, the story is Blockbuster was an autopilot that they would open 15 new stores every year because that's what they'd always done. And they kept doing it, even though their existing stores, nobody was renting at them. I mean, that's part of the reason they were targeted by Carl Icahn in 2005, because he said, just stop. That was, I mean, let's face it, Carl Icahn is not the deepest thinker on the face of the earth. He comes to a company, and says, just stop doing whatever you're doing. Blockbuster, it was actually very good advice because they seemed to be completely unaware of how the world had shifted around them. And as for Netflix, I talked about how companies can ruin businesses. I think Netflix has ruined the entertainment business. I know that's not the way most people think about it. But it's ruined the entertainment business because it's changed the way content is created. Until Netflix came along, you looked at ABC, NBC, Disney, you know, 20th century Fox. The notion of content was you had to be careful about content. You could just throw stuff at the wall and hope something, something stuck. Netflix changed that on its head, right? It produced a hundred new shows and throws it against a wall, hopes that five of them work. And in the process, it's raised the cost of being in the entertainment business. Look at how much trouble Disney is in because it's trying to out Netflix, Netflix with Disney Plus. So I have a feeling the entertainment business needs to kind of come to a new steady state because this isn't going to work. Why is that, I'm I'm
0: confused as to why you think that's bad based on the other conversation we were having a few minutes ago in which lots and lots of people have ideas for startups, two thirds of them fail, the best is win. And that's great because there's a lot of people okay. who don't have barrier to entry to start companies. Why not the same for content that
1: Netflix provides the opportunity for? Because there's only so many hours each day that people can watch content. So if there are six times as many players all producing more content and the number of viewers is not changing that much and the number of hours they're watching can't change that that much, there's no potential market you can go after. It's not like you're expanding the market. If you could somehow make the day 48 hours long. I've tried, I've tried to to do that, it doesn't work. (laughs) And, And get people to watch 40 hours of video every day, then maybe this can work. The only problem is we're basically going after the same viewer base. And that's why Netflix is trying so hard to grow in India because that is really the only market that Netflix has which is the kinds of numbers that can justify that this kind of cost. So I think that the entertainment business, the problem is the overall size of the market in terms of number of hours of viewing is not changing, but there are more people competing for your attention. I mean, all you have to do is sit in front of your TV and click. I mean, I have seven different streaming services. I can't watch all seven at the same time. So I'm picking and choosing across 15 new shows every day. And as I'm doing it, I'm happy there are 50 new shows because there are two that I can watch, but I think about the cost of making these 50 shows. And there's no way these companies can collectively generate enough money to cover that cost. Now, one of the things that you say that I find very interesting is
0: depending on where a company is on the life cycle, it should have a certain kind of CEO. And you know, different people think that the CEO is determined by, or the best CEO is determined by the nature of the industry or the type of product they're producing or, or some other factor. You talk a lot about how the life cycle... Is important. Give us an example of the kind of CEO that you think does not belong
1: at a startup and the kind of CEO that does not belong at a mature company. I'll give you an example of what, I mean, I call these mismatches. I mean, Uber, when uh, Travis Kalanick was pushed out, what, 2017 or 18, because of his, you know, various um, you know various issues on the side, was looking for a new CEO. And at that time, I think they were looking at, um, you know, old CEO. Jeff OCO, now, I like Jeff Emelt. I think he was, um, you know, in spite of the, some of the issues that people have with how he ran GE, you know, he was, he was, a, he was a competent CEO. But it would have been an incredibly bad match for Uber at the time that, you know, they were looking for a CEO. Yeah, why is that? I'm glad they didn't go with, uh, with Jeff Immelt because he wouldn't have fed the company. In contrast, if you take a company like Coca-Cola and you put a visionary on top, a Steve Jobs like CEO, it's asking for trouble. I mean, that's exactly what Yahoo did in 2012 when they went after Marissa Meyer. I mean, they went after her because um, she was, she'd been so successful at Google and they said, look, you know, she's going to turn the ship around. She's going to make Yahoo back into a success like it was 10 years ago. I always describe Marissa's task as being an almost impossible one. It's like being in charge of the outhouse of this huge mansion, being asked to maintain the mansion because by the time she became CEO, 90% of Yahoo's value came from its holdings in Alibaba and in Yahoo Japan, which is a separate publicly traded company. And the way I described it is on any given day, Yahoo's value is driven more by what um, Jack Ma is doing at Alibaba than what Marissa Meyer can do at Yahoo. So I think sometimes companies go after CEOs because they have a reputation of having turned other companies around, but they've got to stop and ask the question, what is the problem we're facing and what type of CEO would best be suited to solve that problem? If you're a young company, you want a visionary, somebody can tell a story to the market, you know, inspire people, carry them across the finish line. That's what Steve Jobs was at Apple in 2001 and 2002. By 2011, Apple was already the largest market cap company in the world. They needed somebody who could make the trains run on time. I mean, I've described Tim Cook and I do this with uh, you know, without any, any negative connotations as he doesn't have a visionary bone in his body, but he can make the trains run on time. He's an incredibly utilitarian CEO. And for Apple, given where it is in its life cycle, that's exactly the kind of CEO you want because you give a visionary a trillion dollars to play with, God only knows how many screw-ups you can have along the way.
0: So going back to the Uber example, mm-hmm. you said that Jeff Immelt, competent, mature, adult in the room, may not have been right early in the stage of Uber, but if Uber is still around in 15 years and as a mature company, then your view of the kind of CEO who should be at
1: the helm changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think Dara Kosrowski is, is a solid CEO for where they are. But if they ever figure out a way to make money, they've become a mature ride sharing company. I mean, they want somebody who is, who, who's a business person who defends, because by then you're going to be, play defense more than offense. Basically. You know, you can't be a rule breaker, which has been the uber, you know, rule books in the beginning. You break the rules and hope for forgiveness. You know, you become an established ride-sharing company. You're going to be setting the rules, and you want to make sure other people are not breaking the rules. A very different type of mindset, now a more defensive mindset, and that will require a very different CEO at the top. So let's talk about a new CEO that's in the news, who's also the old
0: CEO. I'm talking about Disney.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Bob Iger left. Yeah. Bob Iger is back.
1: Yeah. What's your re- your reaction to that? I think this has been mishandled by the board of directors and by Iger for. Almost a decade now, because, you know, I don't know whether you remember, but in 2010 or 2011, Bob Iger announced he wanted to step down, that he wanted to prepare a transition. He said, I've already been, which is very unusual for a CEO with that much power to say, look, I want to step down. I want to prepare the company for the next person in line. Initially, the board went along, but in, by 2014, the board had developed cold feet. They went back to Iger and said, you can't leave now. You're, I mean, this is shades of Julius Caesar, right? Which is, without you or nothing, you'd have to stay on. The first time he said, no, no, you can survive without me. The second time he went along, but the third time he said, you know what? You're right. You can't live without me. So in 2015, he chose to stay on. And that created a ripple effect. The people who were in line after him. Tom's Tags, uh, I mean, they had a very good bench in 2015. They said, we're not waiting around if Iger is going to stay on as CEO. Disney lost its bench in 2015 when Iger stayed on. So by the time you get to 2020, when Iger eventually steps down, the bench is thin. He picked Bob Chapek to be his uh, successor, but I don't think Chapek was ever suited to be CEO of a company like Disney. I mean, he's a, he's a numbers guy. He's a pure finance guy. And no matter how you slice it, Disney has a lot of creative people that you've got to be able to get along with. And I think that, um, that two years later, the reason Iger is back is because he never went away. The board, in a sense, kept looking over Chapek's shoulder, saying, look, maybe we can get Iger back. The question is, where do we go from here? I mean, you've come back again. And you tell us that you're now going to prepare a transition. Who's left on the bench? Who are you going to prepare? So the big question with Iger is to see what he does next. Because if I were Iger, I'd be looking at the next line of command, somebody that I can build up to be the next CEO. Because you can't keep doing this for, for much longer because, you know, time is catching up with both the board and with Iger.
0: You said something back in Miami earlier this year that struck me, and I wonder how it ties into this conversation we've been having about the life cycle of companies. You said, quote, growing
1: old is mandatory. Growing up is optional, end quote. Yeah, I think that, you know, growing up requires that you take on responsibilities, that you, that you start explaining things you did not expect to explain when you were younger. And I think Facebook is a perfect example of how gr- growing up requires a very different way of behaving than growing old. I think Facebook needs to grow up to the fact that it's no longer the young company with incredible potential. It's now, I mean, before it's collapsed, it was already a trillion dollar company with single digit growth. So this, you know, the, the slowdown in growth is something you could have seen coming because there's only so much online advertising in the world. So the problem with Facebook is it's growing old, but it still acts like it's this young startup with, you know, can put out a vision and everybody's going to buy into it. It's not working because you're a very different company than you were a decade ago. You could have thrown out the metaverse idea 10 years ago and people have been excited. Today, people are terrified that you're going to spend a $100 billion in something that they can't even describe as a business. So I think... Um, Many young growth companies have trouble making that transition to being established companies. And that's why you might need a change at the top. And the problem with, with Facebook and many of the other companies we've allowed to go public in the last decade with two class of voting shares is we've given up that right. And I think that's going to be a real issue for us to deal with is what do we do with all these tech companies where we've, in a sense, given up on, dem- on corporate democracy? These are corporate dictatorships because of the voting rights. How are we going to get these people out of the top if they're not suited to run these companies?
0: I'm going to let you have one more opportunity, one final opportunity to offend my friends in legal practice by asking you <laughs> about this thing you once said, or have said many times, quote, I think the MA, the mergers and acquisitions process, is the most destructive process across the world, across corporations, end quote, I know many, many people who would take issue with that
1: statement. Well, it's, it's a fact. I mean, all you have to do is look at the track records of big, especially when you, when you acquire publicly traded companies. It's not my opinion. You just have to look at the facts, which is what happens to companies after they do big acquisitions. InBev buying SAB Miller, um, you know, Time Warner buying AOL. And I'm not cherry picking. I mean, you could take every large merger over the last 30 years and you're basically going to get the same result, which is almost none of them created value for the acquiring company shareholders. And the reason I I attach blame to the legal part of the process is I think uh, the Delaware courts have given a blueprint for companies to overpay and get away with it, with this notion of fair value where bankers sign off and say this is fair value. Because I think it's become a checkbox process where you check all the boxes. You don't have to have a good valuation. You just have to make sure you followed all the rules and you can justify pretty much any price that's paid. So I think we've created a process where acquiring company managers can overpay, can get bankers to sign off that what they're paying is fair value and not get into trouble as a consequence because they can go back and throw themselves at the feet of the court and say, look, we did everything you asked us to do. So maybe the best thing to do is take away the fair value requirement and actually, you know, let the markets deal with it in a much more... Take away the cover you've given managers. I I sort of detect a theme that I didn't appreciate we might have developed
0: before we started the interview. I mean, basically you've said that if you look at the evidence, most startups don't work, most active investing doesn't work, most mergers don't work,
1: and all of these are done by smart, sophisticated people. Is something wrong here? Or lucky people. Yeah, Don't take luck out of the equation. Sometimes you can be incredibly successful because you just happen to be in the right place at the right time. But should there be less of all of this given how much of it doesn't work? No, I think that, you know, as long as you don't get huge amounts of capital being wasted along the way, I think that you will, you know, people will spend their hours, their days starting businesses that go nowhere, but it's part of what creates the energy for change. I tell people, look, would you rather live in a world run by actuaries? They'd be looking at the odds and the probabilities, and if actuaries ran the world, you'd probably get one (laughs) out of every hundred startups actually make it off the ground, but we'd probably still be in caves, the nature of humanity is we overreach. We overestimate things. We're over optimistic. But every great change that we've gone through has come about because people have overreached. Yeah. So I actually think bubbles are a good thing. And that, you know, when people overreach and then investors overreach, it's part of the process of change. I mean, take the dot-com bubble. Much as we've seen all these negative things written about the dot-com boom and bust, it changed the way we live. And I think the same thing can be said about the social media bubble. I mean, every single one of these changes takes the form of bubble because we overreach. Look, the same as you're speaking, it occurs to me the same is true in science. Most experiments fail.
0: Yeah. Most drugs fail. Most treatments fail, right? But from the
1: failure, you get the few successes, which is what powers us forward, right? And, and, and the one lesson I would take away is when somebody comes out and says, hey, we found an easy way to make money. Your antenna should start quivering. I don't care who it is or what they claim to be using. There are no easy ways to make money. Making money, whether it's a business or an investing, is really difficult. So I think that might be one scam detector that maybe your listeners can take away is you see people selling ideas saying, this is a, this is a can't miss idea. There are no ideas that cannot miss. All ideas can miss. And you got to take that into account when you make a bet.
0: Yeah, you know, one of my pet peeves, the thing that drives me crazy, is when people will say about entrepreneurs, including my brother uh, and his best friend, who are serial entrepreneurs, my brother started diapers.com some years ago. And I remember Mm -hmm. hearing people say, oh, that's a good idea. I should have thought of that. Yeah, you could have thought of that. You'd be bankrupt and poor Mm -hmm. because my brother, Vinny and Mark, they work 24 hours a day to execute that. Yeah. And built a real company with a real value that they sold yeah. to Amazon, which we've been talking about, for a lot of money. And it wasn't just the vision, it was the execution. And lots of people think money comes easy and business success comes easy, but it doesn't.
1: Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's the old lines, you know, I think it was Edison who said 90% pers- perspiration, 10%, you know, right. It's probably 99% perspiration if you're, if you're an entrepreneur, getting an idea to product, product to business is incredibly hard work. I have tremendous amounts of respect for people who make it through the process. But at the same time, I don't worship them because that's the other mistake we made as founders who make it through were put on pedestals. That's why we gave them these extra voting rights. We need to remember they're human beings like the rest of us. They come with their flaws and the fact that they've been incredibly successful doesn't mean that you can ignore those flaws because when you have 10 billion dollars, those flaws become even more noticeable than when you have 10 million. Do you think the business
0: schools teach enough morality and ethics? I've, I've spoken to a number of business schools, including Stern, about those kinds of issues. I did a series of, of talks every year at, at Harvard Business School, and this is a, a debate on campus. How do you think about that kind of issue? Because, you know, I used to prosecute people who went to business school on a not uncommon basis. Okay.
1: I'll, I'll tell you, my, my I'm cynical about the teaching of ethics in business schools. What ends up happening when you have an ethics class or a CSR class or an ESG class in business schools is we're teaching people how to be unethical, but make it look ethical. Because the reality is by the time we get these people at the age of 28, 29, 30, their ethics are already kind of nailed down. We're not going to make unethical people into ethical people or ethical people into unethical people. We're just showing them the fences of yours, how far you can go. So I'm not sure much is accomplished by the teaching of ethics in business schools. The reason that they end up being in in your crosshairs is you now give them a billion dollars to trade and they're greedy and they go after the billion dollars. They're going to end up in a lot more trouble than somebody who has only 10 million to trade or 1 million to work with. So I think the the most successful business schools are unfortunately going to have the same proportion of unethical people as the schools that don't um, that that teach ethics, but those those unethical people are going to be able to do more damage because they have more you know, more power to do it with. You know, I I don't disagree with you. And when I went and spoke
0: at these schools and think about ethics classes and business schools I didn't think about targeting the future criminal. And I would make a joke about it and I know you know that right. statistically speaking in a class of 100 there are one or two of you who will commit serious securities fraud in the future and I know who you are. <laughs> More importantly, I thought that what I was trying to get people to understand and the ears that I was aiming for were those of the students who were basically good and not unethical on their own but who as is the case yeah. in every controversy and scandal and bad conduct that ever has happened in the history of the world, you look the other way or enable things, not because you're unethical, but because you don't have moral courage. Right. And people haven't impressed upon you the importance of you know, elevating or escalating or raising your voice. So I always thought that those kinds of teachings were not for the bad guys,
1: but for the good guys who might be encouraged to do more. And and I think that's a good message. The only problem is the golden handcuffs that these yeah. kids get put into because they're kids when they come out, twenty eight, twenty nine, you're given of you know, three hundred thousand, five hundred thousand in your first year, is the more money you make, the more difficult it becomes to do the right thing because you have lifestyle now to support. And I think that it's almost like as you raise, you know, your consciousness you know, from your side, investment banks are raising their pay and bonuses by equivalent amounts. And, you know, it's, I know it's a cynical view to bring to the world, but I think that's there's a reason why so much of this bad stuff happens at hedge funds, at investment banks. It's because when you're making that much money, you find a way to rationalize looking away. And that's the only way I can describe it is you find a way, even though your 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 conscience tells you this is wrong, this shouldn't be done, you find a way to rationalize it. And I think um you know it's it's too bad. And I really think that we need to bring down and some of this has to come from the bursting of the banking bubble, which has already started to happen. There are fewer bankers now being hired than five years ago, or 10 years ago. And that's a healthy thing. We have had too many people go into the financial services business in the last 20 to 30 years. And I think business schools are to blame for that because we've fed in traders and bankers when these people should be working in businesses or going out and being signed. We pull people from the sciences and from mathematics into business schools so they can trade options. That's not a good use of their their intellect or their time. But that's exactly what happens when you get these disproportional pay scales in some professions and not in others.
0: Do you agree that everyone's most important commodity is their time? Absolutely. Well, given that, Professor, I want to thank you for your time. It's been a real treat and a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. My conversation with Aswath DeModeran continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. To end the show this week, I wanted to highlight a nonprofit organization that caught my eye because of all the amazing work that they're doing. They're called the Free Minds Book Club and Writing Workshop. Now, this isn't just any book club. Its members consist of incarcerated and formerly incarcerated youth and adults. Founded back in 2002 as a way to help youth who were tried as adults in Washington, D.C., Free Minds was a biweekly program that strived to tackle the many issues that come with incarceration, including communication skills. Today, it has grown to be so much more. They now offer weekly book clubs and writing workshops for incarcerated youth, young adults, and adults interested in pursuing education, and Spanish-speaking adults in D.C. jails, as well as incarcerated women. To this day, they have read over 300 books, including The Maze Runner of Mice and Men and Harry Potter, and have invited many guest authors to speak at their meetings. As their website states, the organization's mission is to build a community where members can, quote, foster personal development and systems change for justice-involved youth and adults through the literary arts, workforce development, trauma healing, peace-building, and member-led advocacy, end quote. Another important issue, of course, that Free Minds looks to address is reintegration into society after incarceration, an issue that I care very much about. Through their re-entry book club, known as The Build-Up, members think about the way in which jails and prisons can negatively impact their lives, and how to build themselves back up. As one of their members, Gary, wrote, quote, The book club has helped me expand my mind in ways I thought wasn't possible, being as though I grew up in the public housing. I have about 90 days until I'm able to reenter society and share my story with teens growing up as I once did, and that's all thanks to Free Minds, end quote. In addition, Free Minds connects its formerly incarcerated members to educational and professional development opportunities, assists them in the job application process, Helps them build credit and also get access to public benefits. As I mentioned, this has been a topic of deep personal interest to me, and I've stressed before how crucial it is to focus on reforming reentry. The fact is, when we put our energy into bettering reintegration, it benefits all of us. Recidivism goes down, public safety goes up, local economies are improved, and people get a second chance at life. Check out the show notes for this episode if you're interested in learning more or in donating. You can even volunteer your time by writing letters or poems to members of Free Minds. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Aswath demora Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tatasciore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. The CAFE team is David Curlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.